Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the Captain's Log Sermons. You'll be hearing Nathan preach not only at Liberty Grace Church, but also at surrounding churches. We hope that this is an encouragement to you and that you're blessed. Hello, everyone. It's good to see all of you here who are here in person and welcome also to those of you who are here on Zoom. Um, I'm excited to be able to be here this evening and continue on in our series in the book of Ecclesiastes and speak to you today from God's word. The book of Ecclesiastes is one that has always had a bit of a special place in my heart. And honestly, it is probably the book that I would say is my favorite book in the entire Bible. It is a, a complicated and a confusing book. But I think the more that we dig into it and the, the more time we spend in this book, the more we're able to see the beauty of what we're being taught in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I hope over the past couple of weeks, as we've spent time studying it together, you've been able to see a little bit of that. It was a couple of years ago that I decided just in my own devotions, I was going to spend some time looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. I thought to myself, this is, this is a book that I don't really understand. I'm not entirely sure what to do with. Um, and I, I don't know how it fits into the Bible. It seems like a book that is just saying over and over that all life is vanity. It, it just doesn't seem to fit quite so well in the Bible. And I wanted, to, I wanted to understand it. I wanted to understand why it's there and what it is talking about. And so for about a, a two week period, I tried to read through the entire book, start to finish um, about every single day. And as I spent more time in this book, as I read through it more and more, and I dug into what was going on in, uh, in this book, I began to see more and more how the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes point us so clearly to Christ and to the gospel. And that's not to say that this isn't a challenging and a confusing book, because it definitely is. There's a lot of verses in here, including some that we're going to be looking at uh, together this evening that are really tough to wrestle through and, and understand. But as we look at our passage this evening, what I'm hoping we're going to be able to see is that the preacher is encouraging each and every one of us to live a wise life. And more than that, he's teaching us how to live a wise life and showing us that uh, true wisdom and a truly wise life can only be found in the gospel. So the passage that we're looking at together is Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 7, and all the way down to chapter 8, verse 1. And this is coming directly on the heels of the passage that Daryl looked at with us last week, um, where he was encouraging us to find our happiness, not in anything in this world, but rather in simple contentment and humble obedience to God. So this passage moves us forward from that conversation on, on where happiness is to be found in life and the preacher takes us on a little bit of a journey with him over, over the course of this passage as he tries to understand man's pursuit of wisdom and tries to understand what value there is in living a wise life. And if you remember back to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 16, what the preacher says about himself, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were in Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. 
So way back at the beginning of the book, we've been introduced to, to this teacher, to this preacher, who is the wisest man in all of Jerusalem and the wisest man to ever live. It is um, generally thought that this book was written either by Solomon or by someone at a later point in time writing as if they were Solomon, which was a common practice in uh, Jewish literature. But Solomon, as, as a king, was the wisest man ever to live. And so that is the person that we are introduced to at the beginning of the book. And yet at the beginning of our passage this evening, we see in verse seven to eight, he opens with this. He says, all of the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? So here we have the wisest man ever to live, and he's basically asking us the question, what is the point of being wise? What, what is the purpose of all of man's work and all of his wisdom? And it seems that the answer that he comes to in, in these verses isn't a very encouraging one or the one that we would expect to find, where he says in verse 7, all of the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Basically, Man works and works and works, and yet it seems to accomplish nothing. We work to satisfy ourselves, and yet we never actually reach that point of satisfaction. And again, this is something that Daryl looked at with us last week, that we try to find happiness and, and satisfaction in so many things in this world, and yet we never actually seem to get to that point where we are satisfied. We work hard to, to earn money to provide for ourselves, and yet we never seem to have enough. And the more that we have, the more we seem to need to satisfy ourselves. And it just keeps and going and going. We never actually seem to get to that point where we're happy with what we have. And the teacher doesn't just stop there with, with our work. He continues on and he asks, what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And that's an odd question to be asked by a man who is claimed to be one of the wisest men ever to live, you would think that he, he would know that being wise has its advantages. But the point he's getting at here when, when he's looking at um, the wisdom of man and he, he thinks about his previous statement about man's work is that he sees ultimately no real advantage in wisdom of. A wise man and a fool alike continue to work and work, but neither seem to be satisfied. And so he asks that question, if that's true, what is the advantage or what is the purpose of being wise? And so in verse nine of chapter six, what the teacher says is that basically it's better to just be satisfied with what you already have rather than continue to strive for more. Because in that striving to find more and more, you will never really find that satisfaction that you're trying to get. This is what he says in verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So this continual quest for more satisfaction, ultimately, it yields nothing. We see again this, um, this same declaration from the teacher that is so common throughout the book where he says, this also is vanity. This is, this is a breath. Here one moment, gone the next. And he drives this point home in verses 10 to 12, where he says, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. 
The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives his few, the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now, looking at these verses, this really doesn't seem like the kind of encouraging passage that you would hope to hear in a sermon on a Sunday evening. But stay with me, because throughout this passage, we're going to be following along with the teacher as he, as he goes on his quest to find the meaning or the purpose in wisdom. His goal is to find what is the value of wisdom, what is the value of living a wise life. Since, as he said, just looking at it initially, it seems to all be vanity. And so these verses, we see that despite all of man's work, all of his wisdom, nothing really seems to be accomplished. Man doesn't seem to be able to change the way the world is by his, by his works or by his wisdom. And the harder he tries, the more useless it seems. And so the teacher concludes that the work and the wisdom of man is utter vanity. And how many of us have felt that way? We work so hard day in and day out. And yet at the end of the day, we feel like we really haven't accomplished anything. Even those of us who, who try to be wise with what we have, wise with our money, try to, try to spend it well, we find we're, we're constantly needing more. We seem to work and work, but don't seem to accomplish much. Well, I want to encourage you with something that the author of Ecclesiastes understands how you feel if that's the situation that you're in. And he's felt the same thing. But remember, this is only the beginning of this passage. This is only the beginning of this journey that the teacher is taking us on. It doesn't end here. And beginning in chapter 7, we see a, a list about the first 12 verses of chapter 7 of these, uh, these proverbs, these short one-verse lessons or, or wise sayings from the teacher. And they all have a common theme. The teacher is basically communicating that a wise life is better than a foolish life. It's better to try to live wisely than to just give up and try to live it up as much as you can. If you look at verses four to five in chapter seven, he says this, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And so here the teacher is encouraging the reader to seek to live a wise life, that a wise life ultimately is better than a foolish life. And this little section of Proverbs it concludes in verses 11 and 12, where he says, wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So having begun into this passage, the teacher has told us that the work and the wisdom of man is vanity. It doesn't seem to accomplish anything. And he spends 12 verses talking about the importance of wisdom and encouraging us to live a wise life. So the question is, what, what has changed? What's changed between the teacher saying, what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. What is it that has caused him to encourage us to live a wise life as opposed to a foolish one?
We want to read to you verses 12 to 14 in in chapter 7, which say this. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So after this list of, of Proverbs and the preacher advising us to live a wise life rather than a foolish one, we see these words, consider what God has done. And he continues to say, who can make straight what he has made crooked? What the author seems to be saying here is really the exact opposite of what we saw at the beginning of the passage. He began talking about how all of the work and the wisdom of of man, of human beings, is all vanity. We work and yet we're never satisfied. And yet here he shows that the work and the wisdom of God is unchangeable. He says, who can make straight what he has made crooked? It's important to note that when he's talking about what God has made crooked, he is not saying that God has messed up this world and we have no hope of fixing the mistakes he's made. So we might as well just learn to live with it. That is not what he's trying to say. Instead, what he's saying is that God is sovereign and he has created this world in a certain way. And he's also sovereign over what happens in this world. So it is not up to us as his creation to look at what God has done and decide that we want it to be done differently. And it is our job to fix what we think God has messed up. And this applies to the world and it applies to each of our individual lives. If you look again at verse 14, where he says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This certainly seems to be an appropriate verse for us in the year of 2020. We're encouraged in times of prosperity to be joyful, to be glad and bring praises to God for the gifts and the blessings that he has given. But we're also encouraged in the times of adversity and and difficulty and challenge to still give glory to God because he is sovereign even in those times. God is in control both in the good and the difficult times. And honestly, it can be a lot harder to remember that, that God is in control when everything around us in the world seems to be spinning so far out of control. And yet the writer of Ecclesiastes is giving us that encouragement that no matter what is going on in the world around us, no matter what is going on in our lives, God is in control and we can trust him. It's God who's in control of all of life, not us, no matter how hard we try. And so while the work and the wisdom of human beings is nothing but vanity, the work and the wisdom of God is unchangeable. So what does that say to us about where true wisdom and where a wise life can be found? Verses 11 to 12 make it clear that there there is an advantage to wisdom. There is reasons to to seek to be wise. Answering that question from chapter 6 of what advantage has the wise man over the fool. 
In the next part of the passage, he's going to elaborate on what exactly that advantage is and where a truly wise life can be found. As we continue along with the preacher on this journey, now that he's established that the work and the wisdom of man is vanity and the work and the wisdom of God is unchangeable, he's going to elaborate more on his earlier comments on wisdom. And this starts at verse 15, where he says, In my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And so this seems to call back to that earlier question of what advantage has the wise man over the fool. If you look out and you, you see people who are, who are living righteously and following God, who are perishing, and yet people who are living in sin seem to be prospering in that sin, what is the point of being wise? But look at what he says next. He says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and that from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So here he's beginning to describe for us how to live a wise life. But what, what is going on in these verses? The teacher is saying, do not be overly righteous and do not be overly wicked. So is he telling us that we all have a certain allowance of sin in our lives, that we can just get to a, a certain level before we, before we cross that line, as long as we try not to be too bad, then we're all right? That's not quite what he's saying here. In the first part of the verse, he's saying, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself overly wise. And he's not saying, make sure you're not too good of a person, just throw the occasional sin in there every once in a while, balance things out. That is not what he's trying to say to us here. What he's actually talking about is something that we've seen before. And that's the idea of trying to find your security or your value in blind religious observance or ritual, trying to do enough good religious acts in order to please God and earn your own salvation. One of the best examples of what the teacher is talking about here comes in the form of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They were so committed to following every single part of God's law, and they even went so far as to write laws of their own in order to keep themselves from even coming close to breaking God's law. They thought if they just did enough, then they could earn God's acceptance. And they looked down on anyone around them who they thought wasn't as righteous as themselves. And Jesus has some harsh words for these Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, where he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And this is what the teacher is talking about. Those who are so committed to trying to earn their salvation through religious ritual, but they're lacking the heart behind it. There's a pride that he's speaking about here in trying to earn your own salvation, trying to earn God's acceptance. On the other hand, in the second part of this verse, he says, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. So he's saying a little sin to okay, as long as it's not too much. No, what he's actually saying here is that every single one of us are sinful people. Every single one of us has sin in our lives. And while we shouldn't try to earn our salvation through good works, 
We shouldn't just let the pendulum swing the other way and give in to every sinful impulse or temptation that comes into our mind and essentially throw our hands up in the air and give up and say, I'm, I'm sinful. I cannot be good enough for God. So I'm just going to give up and stop trying. What he's talking about here is that whole idea of live it up, do whatever feels right to you, do your own thing. Just try to be as happy as you can in this life. See, we shouldn't try to deny that we're sinful people, but we shouldn't allow ourselves to be ruled by that sin. Now, this is something that the Apostle Paul touches on in the book of Romans. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so Paul is highlighting this truth that God's grace is, is shown so clearly to us and that he saved us while we were still sinners. And it's important to recognize the, the gravity and the significance of sin because when we realize what we have been saved from, when we realize how sinful we truly are, we see the beauty of God's grace and that he still loved us enough to save us. And when we're saved, we're committed to die to sin and to live for God, not continuing to be ruled by that sin like we were before, but living for him and not trying to earn this gift of salvation on our own through good works or, or religious observance, but recognizing that this is the free gift that comes through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in the next part of this section in Ecclesiastes, the teacher gives us the key to where a wise life has been can be found. He says, do not be overly righteous, do not be overly wicked, but look at what he says next. He says, the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. We find the same idea in the book of Proverbs in chapter 9, verse 10, where he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So it's here in fearing the Lord that we find tr true wisdom and the way to live a wise life. The teacher has told us that all of the work and the wisdom of man is vanity. He's told us that the work and the wisdom of God is unchangeable. And because of that, a wise life can only be found in God. In God's unchanging and eternal wisdom, that is the only place to find a, a wise life life. It's only in fearing God, living in devotion to him that we can find wisdom, not trying to earn his love through our good works and not just giving up to live life our own way and hope that we can sort it out with God later, but living in obedience to him, following his commands and putting our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord. And the teacher points out in verse 23 to 24, he says, all of this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? The teacher admits that this is not an easy thing to do. Living this kind of wise life is not easy. And it's not something we can do in our own strength. 
Even the wisest man ever to live found that he was not able to get this kind of wisdom on his own. He was not able to live this kind of wise life. See, to live this life in God, it, it takes constant prayer that God would teach us through studying his word that he would teach us how to follow him, how to live wisely in his sight. And it takes prayer that he would help us to do this through the power of his Holy Spirit in us. And so now as we come to the conclusion, the the end of this passage, the teacher is going to end with giving us a final warning. In verse 25 to 26, this is what he says. Says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And in verse 27 to 29, he writes this Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. As seems like an odd way for the teacher to conclude this conversation on wisdom. We've talked about finding true wisdom in God rather than ourselves. But here now we, we have this little collection of verses right at the end where the teacher has encountered only one upright man and not a single upright woman. So what is going on here at the end of our passage? Well, first of all, these last few verses are not meant to be a, a blanket statement or, or judgment on different genders saying that Men are inherently righteous and women are inherently not righteous. That is not what he is trying to communicate here. Rather, he's speaking from his own experience in this moment and giving a warning to the reader about who they choose to surround themselves with and the danger of allowing ourselves to be influenced by the wrong people. You see, we have to remember that this book was written either by Solomon himself or someone who was speaking as Solomon. And King Solomon was very famous for two things. First, he was famous as the wisest man who ever lived. But the second thing that he was famous for was accumulating hundreds upon hundreds of different wives, which he found from, from other nations who came worshiping other gods and used their influence over Solomon to, to cause him to begin worshiping other gods rather than worshiping the one true God. So what the teacher is giving us here is he's giving us a warning to be careful about the people that we allow to have the deepest influence in our life. When he speaks about this one man in a thousand, what he's talking about is how rare it is to find someone, a friend who will truly encourage you and challenge you to live this life of wisdom that he has described for us and how dangerous it is to surround yourself with people who are going to try to pull you away. And he says one man among a thousand, he is making that point that people like this are difficult to find, but they are worth looking for. 
And that's not telling us that we shouldn't associate with anyone who isn't a Christian, but we are being warned about who we allow to have the deepest and most significant influence in our lives. Solomon's the perfect example of this, of someone who allowed hundreds of different people, hundreds of different wives into the deepest parts of his life and who slowly pulled him away from God and caused his downfall, causing him to worship other gods and forget about the one true God the one true source of wisdom. And so he encourages us to seek and to find those people who are going to continue to turn us back to Christ, who will call us out if we start to wander away, and who are always going to challenge us to go deeper in our relationship with Christ. Those people are rare to find, but they are worth looking for. And no matter who we are, whether man or woman, there is truth to be found in this verse where he says, one upright man among a thousand. There is one, one friend that we can rely on to help us live this life of true wisdom in God that the teacher has described. There's only one man to ever live, the only human being who ever perfectly embodied the type of godly wisdom that the teacher encourages in this passage, and that was Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of what we see in this passage, who lived a perfect and a wise life. And through his death and his resurrection, he provides a way for us to live a wise life only through him. All he asks of us is to put our faith in him and to follow after him. And so the teacher concludes this passage In this final verse, chapter 8, verse 1, as he writes these words, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. And so there it is, the beauty and the advantage of true wisdom. The wisdom that is not found in ourselves or in our own efforts to be righteous but rather the true wisdom that is found only in God, in his unchanging and eternal wisdom and through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for what you teach us in your word. God, we thank you for this passage where we are are being shown how to live a wise life, God, and reminded that true wisdom is found only in you. Father, I pray that each and every one of us today would take this to heart, would turn to you, Lord, stop trying to achieve this on our own, to work and work to satisfy ourselves or, or gain wisdom on our own, but Lord, we would recognize that this, this wisdom, this fulfillment comes only from you. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who allows us to have a relationship with you, who allows us to live this type of life in you. Lord, we pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts through your spirit, showing us each and every day how to live a wise life for you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, thanks so much for tuning in today. We hope that this is an encouragement to you. As always, if you want to know more about us and our ministry, feel free to follow us on Facebook or Instagram or go to our website. Thanks so much and see you next time.